Today we are starting a new series entitled With Us. We're going to be looking at the Holy Spirit from John's perspective in the gospel that he wrote. I don't know how you feel about that. I'm excited. Um, In preference to that, many of you know I was a certified financial planner at one time in my past, but what many of you may not know is on the road to get there, I was licensed first with a life insurance company. And so really, uh, if you looked at it from a purely analytical point, although we want to sell investments and do financial planning for people, you could have called me at that time a life insurance salesperson. Whoa, how does that go over for you? Well, uh, I even, when I thought of that label, I had internal pushback at the start because I'd had a bad experience with a life insurance salesperson and you hear things and maybe some people misrepresent the industry, but as we were uh, working with the trainer and he told me some of his own personal experiences about the difference his work had made in real lives, like people when they have an unexpected death in their family and he could come and although you can't relieve the suffering and pain, what he was bringing to them would certainly not increase the pain because he's helping take care of some of the financial burden that might have been there otherwise. And as we learned about uh, approaching this part of our financial planning um, program to approach approach it with uh, the needs of the person, not the commission that we might make, and to really care about them and to think about their future and how this was good for them. Um, Instead of running away from it and avoiding it, I began to see that as a good thing. When we hear the term Holy Spirit, many of us will have different perceptions of that and what that means. And for some of us, it's like, oh, I so want to talk about that and welcome that subject. But for others, it is something where you'd, you'd want to avoid because maybe you've experienced situations where the Holy Spirit, his activity, what he does, has been misrepresented. And so as we go through this series, it's my hope that we will get really clear from the biblical perspective in the Gospel of John who the Holy Spirit is, what he does, and the, and the role of the Holy Spirit what that should be in each of our lives. From the Gospel of John, to be clear, also, the Holy Spirit is not John's main subject in his Gospel. But that doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit isn't crucial to what he's talking about. It's like an Academy Award movie that wins, wins Best Picture. Uh, chances are there was good, a good lead actor and a good lead actress, but that there, there were also very good people in supporting roles, and they, they won awards for that. The Holy Spirit is not the main actor, if you will, in John's gospel, but he is absolutely critical to what is going on. Jesus' life does not work without the work of the Holy Spirit, and neither does ours. To put it another way for for personal application, if your life today is not working, what we're going to be talking about the next five or six weeks, the Holy Spirit, who he is, what he does, could be the answer to you for that your life does work the way that God intended it. Over this series, we are going to come to know the Holy Spirit better. In Orthodox Christian belief through the ages, we have believed in God as one God, one in essence, but three in person. We believe that God exists as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And the importance of the Holy Spirit we're going to look at this morning is to identity, It's to God's mission, 
and it's also to ministry to us. And so we're going to look, starting from John chapter 1. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. And I'm going to read verses 29 to 34. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him. This is speaking of John the Baptist. He saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Let's begin this morning on the subject identity. The Holy Spirit reveals, and Jesus is marked by the Spirit, and that reveals his identity. John is the gospel writer, and he writes of another John, John the Baptist. That's where we're picking it up in his story here. And John the Baptist is a, a He's an unusual character. If John lived today, he'd probably live outside of the little town of Asuias in the desert somewhere. He'd have a vegan diet and he'd be salted with insects. He'd probably wear clothes that were from Value Village that had been discarded from Value Village. Uh, he'd have unkept hair, probably long beard. Uh, he was a different kind of guy. But he was a magnetic preacher and he came with a message. The kingdom of God is coming. The kingdom of God is like here. It's right at the door. And he called people to repent. He said, repent. Confess your sins. And then John baptized them. And John's message was uh, received a lot by the lower class, by the poor and, and those who didn't have investment in power and social status in their society. In throngs, they would go out to him and there they would confess their sins and be baptized. So this caused a lot of controversy, of course, in, in, in the area. There was a rising hype to John. Canadians are typically down on hype, aren't we? We don't hype anything. In fact, when we see somebody south of the border hype something, we, we in a derogatory way, we criticize them for hyping. But there's a lot of hype going around John. There's expectation. The only time Canadians are up with hype is when it comes to hockey. And so you might remember like a year and a half ago spring where uh, there's this city in Canada. You might not be familiar with it. It's out east. It's called Toronto. And they have had a sad hockey team for many years. They will admit it. If you're a fan of the Toronto Maple Leafs, they'll admit it. But there was hype around the fact that they obtained the first pick and they would get a guy by the name of Austin Matthews who would change their whole destiny around. And in his first game, he scores four goals as a rookie in the NHL. Who does that? Hype, hype, hype. And it still exists today. John the Baptist was a Jew. So you've got to understand the hype that would be in the Israel people in particular. See, in their past, from their scriptures, spoke of a prophet who would come. It would speak of Elijah coming one day. And it would speak of one even greater, the one that they referred to as the Messiah. And as this is going on, the people want to know, John, who are you? Are you that Messiah? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? And John the writer tells us that this is a legitimate ministry that is going on with John the Baptist, but he is not the one. 
He is preparing people for the one. Quoting Isaiah, John the Baptist says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. Well, how does a person get ready for the presence of the Lord? What, what do you do to make yourself ready for the presence of the Lord? Well, it'd be like preparing your house for a special guest. What would you do? You, you get things in order. You, you, you clean things up. John is saying, get your lives ready. Make straight the way. Confess. Turn from going against God. Turn towards him. Prepare for what's coming. In verse 29, we're introduced to who that one is going to be. John sees Jesus coming to him. And he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, that's an amazing statement. Takes away the sin of the world. I mean, who can take away the sin of one person and what they've done, let alone the whole world through all time, throughout all eternity? Who can do that? John announces this over the person of Jesus. Amazing statement. Again, from a Jewish perspective, they, they, this would be so mind-blowing to them. When they heard the word Lamb of God, they could go back to so many stories in their Old Testament, like Abraham, and you probably know this story, where, where Abraham finally has a son, and yet he's told by God to go out and to sacrifice his precious son. And so on the way to do that, as he walks in obedience, he takes his son up the mountain, and as they're walking up, his son says to them, hey, Dad, like we're going up to make a sacrifice, but where's the lamb? And Abraham says to him, God himself will provide a lamb. Flash forward and the, the children of Israel are in bondage to a nation called Egypt and God's going to deliver them. So he sends these plagues, 10 miracles, so that ultimately Pharaoh will let them go. And on the very last one, God tells his people, it's, it's, I'm going to come and it's, it's, I'm going to judge Egypt and you'll be judged with them unless you do this. You slaughter a lamb, you take its blood, and you wipe it on the doorposts of your house and you eat that lamb. And then as, as you're doing that and the darkness comes and the judgment happens, uh, you will be spared. And they are. The lamb killed that night, bloodshed that night, and they are saved. And not only are they saved from death and destruction in their family, but also as they set out after that to be freed from Egypt, the, the, the people of Egypt load them up with gifts. So they leave rich as they're set free. Is that a picture of anything familiar to you? And then there's the... The going forward when the children of Israel get to Mount Sinai and God instructs them how they're going to live in relationship with him. And part of their regular um, uh, uh, way that they're going to do things is the priesthood. They're going to sacrifice a lamb on a regular basis and that blood will be shed and it will allow God to pass over their, uh, their sins so that they can live in relationship with him. Lamb, lamb, lamb. And here John says these amazing words. Behold, the lamb of God. How did he know this? John gives us a, a flashback in verse 31. I myself did not know him, he says. And maybe John the Baptist knew a little bit about Jesus. I mean, we know that their parents were relatives of some sort, so he might have known about Jesus. Maybe he had some interaction with Jesus in his childhood and growing up, but he did not know that Jesus was the one. 
We know he must have had a respect for Jesus because other gospels tell us when Jesus came to be baptized by John, John says, oh, I shouldn't be baptizing you. You should be baptizing me. Maybe what he's saying there is, you know, Jesus, you live such a perfect life. Like, I'm the one who has issues in my life, not you. But John was given a sign from God that when he saw this sign, he would know who that one is. And like a dove, that is what the Spirit does with Jesus. That is the sign. John will see the Holy Spirit descending on someone and remaining on him. John sees that with Jesus. Jesus is marked by the Spirit of God. And this mark, this presence of the Holy Spirit is not temporal. See, in Old Testament times, we have lots of records where the Holy Spirit came and came upon a person and they did something dramatic and miraculous through that power of the Holy Spirit. But this is going to be different. The Holy Spirit descends on Jesus and John says, remains. That's the mark. Permanence. You probably know the difference between permanence and temporary. So I'm thinking about marks. I'm thinking about henna tattoos versus an ink tattoo that's sewn in with a needle. Uh, every once in a while, my, my daughters in their relationship with people we know will get henna done on their hands. And it's, uh, if you've never seen it, it's, in, it's incredible. It's from the henna plant. They make a paste. And then you know with, they do beautiful artwork. And so if you've ever been to an Indo-Canadian gathering where there's a wedding or something like that, often, because it's such a special event, they'll get the henna done on, on their hands. And so my daughters have done that. And it's beautiful for the first day or two. The fourth day, maybe not so much, because it, what happens? It's a, it's a topical treatment. It, it washes off eventually, so it's going to last maybe two weeks. Whereas, you know, an ink tattoo, you better, be, you better be serious that you really want this. Why? Because for all intents and purposes, without you know, real hard work, it's permanent. Like, it's stitched in, not to the top layer of skin. It's stitched in below the top layer of the skin. And the dye there. Jesus was marked by the presence of the Holy Spirit that would be permanently upon him for his life. And we are to be marked by the presence of the Holy Spirit too. This is true of the church corporately. If you were here for the last series we did called Flourish, we talked about the church and that God has called us to be a dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. Let me read to you again Ephesians chapter 2, a few verses there. Starting verse 19, it says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In other words, we as human beings are to be built together by God's work to be this dwelling place, to be this place where, where people come and they experience the presence of God. We're marked by it. The church is to be marked by the Spirit. This is also true of individuals. There's this um, really crazy story in Acts chapter 6 where the, the, it appears there's a bit of conflict going on and you know, amongst themselves, they used to look after one another. And so, but there's a problem in that it seems the widows 
uh, who are Grecian-speaking are being neglected while the widows who are Hebrew widows are being taken care of. And so the people see this conflict and they come to the leaders. They come to the apostles and they say, fix this thing. But the apostles say, no, we need to give ourselves to God's word and to prayer. So choose out from among yourselves those who are of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom. Good repute, full of the spirit. How do you know someone is full of the spirit? Like, did they have a label on their, on their lapels? Said, hi, my name is John. I'm full of the spirit. How, how would they know that? Maybe today we could mark people with a chip under their wrist. And when you came into church, we'd have you scan in. And it would say, oh, full of the spirit. Great, we need you. Could you solve this problem for us? How do we know someone is full of the Spirit? What is the criterion behind that? You know. You just know when someone is full of the Spirit. I wish I had a better answer, and I do. But you know. This uh, Friday, I had the opportunity to go to a great conference here in Abbotsford. It was around the subject of character. So there's a national character initiative, and Abbotsford hosted it here in, in our city. And behind it is this idea to promote character, to promote respect, responsibility, integrity, empathy, courage, and service. These are great character qualities. And the tagline for the weekend was, make your mark. I thought that was amazing. What is God want to do in our lives. What does it look like when we are full of the Spirit? I think we have respect. I think we're responsible. I think we have integrity. I think we have empathy. I think we have courage. I think we have service. All these things especially could be summed up in one word. Love. We would be known by our love. Who are those filled with the Spirit? People who are marked by Jesus, by his Holy Spirit, who begin to look more and more like Jesus in his character and also do his work. As it is with Jesus, so it is to be with us, marked by the Spirit. The, the Greek translation of the word Messiah is anointed or Christ. So in Old Testament times, when a, when a person like a king or a prophet or a priest was going to be set aside for their uh, specific calling, they would anoint that person, usually with oil. So they would set them aside with oil, and they were, they were now set aside for the special calling in their life. Jesus is called Jesus Christ. So that is not his last name. If you thought it was his last name, that is not his last name. You, can't, you wouldn't have been able in the first century to go in a phone book and go, okay, Christ. There's Jesus. That's not how it would work. Christ was not his last name. It was a description of God's work in his life. We see this in Acts chapter 10. When we read the description of, your, of his ministry, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus. How did God anoint Jesus? With the Holy Spirit and with power. And so Jesus went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. 
Not only is the Spirit important to identity, that we're marked by the Spirit, but the Spirit empowers for service. If you see from this text in Acts chapter 10, when did the ministry of Jesus begin? His ministry began after this experience. After the Holy Spirit descended and remained upon him is when the ministry of Jesus to touch people, to heal them, to set them free, that's when it began. So I hope you see the significance of that. You see, when we, when we think of Jesus, so often we think of his divinity. In John chapter 1, at the very beginning, John reminds us of Jesus' divinity. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's talking about Jesus. Jesus was God, and then he talks about how this Word created the world. And recently, we talked about how the power of God's Word to speak into existence the things that we see. This is Jesus, powerful, divine God, Jesus. But as we read a little further in John's introduction in John chapter one, he talks about how Jesus became flesh. He became one of us. This was a struggle for the early church believers, how to figure this out. But what they came to the conclusion was that Jesus was fully God, but took on full humanity. This is the Christian understanding as announced to us in the creed, the Chalcedonian creed in 451 AD. It says this, we then following the Holy Fathers with all one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man. So we read in Luke chapter two, where it talks about Jesus as a, as a child. It says, he grew and became strong, filled with wisdom and the favor of God was upon him. So as a human being, Jesus had to learn all kinds of things. In Philippians 2, it, it explains to us how this could be so. It talks to us, it says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of the servant, being born in the likeness of men. In other words, Jesus was God, fully God, but instead of just hanging on to that divinity, he took on humanity and did not ex access the, all those things that he could have as he walked on this earth. He walked in his full humanity. And so we read how Jesus was tired. Jesus was hungry. Jesus fell asleep in a boat in a big storm. He must have been exhausted. See, he was fully human, just like you and I are, but he did not access all the things he could have accessed if he wanted to. One of the, one of the pictures that would, I don't know, it doesn't do a very good job of explaining it, but the best I can come up with is it, it'd be like if you were the CEO of a multi-million dollar company and you went on a missions trip with your young adults down to Guadalajara with our partnership church there, La Cantera, and as part of their initiative, you go into one of the slum areas to spend a few days sleeping on the street with them and eating the food they eat or don't eat the food they eat and, you know, mingling with the rats and the dogs and... But as a CEO, you could easily have some great food sent to you. You could easily have them do a, a helicopter drop with the right bedding and the right pillows because you just miss your pillow so much. But you don't do that. You could, but you don't. Jesus, as he walked on this earth, did not 
access his his divinity, but functioned and operated out of the power and leading of the Holy Spirit. Dan Spade, who's written a book called uh, Four Chair Discipling, says this, never less than God, he chose to live his life never more than man. So what is the significance of that to us? Well, see, if Jesus lived his life as a human being, fully surrendered to the will of the Father, led by the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit, that then is the way we are supposed to live. He has both made a way for that to happen and shown us the way by example. That is how we are supposed to live, in relationship with God, submitting our lives to him, empowered in relationship with the Holy Spirit. And because of that, amazing things can happen. Spader says his greatest grief, probably the greatest grief we bring to the heart of Jesus is the lack of faith in what he wants to do in and then through us. We underestimate. So we look at the mission of Jesus beyond our grasp, yet over and over we are told to ask and ask and ask again. He says, and I quote, we can now approach the mission Jesus has given us with great joy and anticipation because we know now, like Jesus in his humanity, that the power is not within us. It's not about what you and I can muster up, but within the resources he has made available to us. Prayer, word, and most importantly, the Holy Spirit. Before the Holy Spirit can work through us, we have to let him work in us. So the last thing we want to look at is ministry, how the Holy Spirit saturates. Isn't it interesting that when John the Baptist recounts the ministry of Jesus, he points to two things. First of all, that Jesus will be the Lamb of God, that he will be the one who takes away our sins. It'll be his work on the cross that would be so crucial to that, that his blood would be shed for people but he'd rise from the dead and so people could put their faith and trust in him, confess their sins, and because of his victory over sin and death, they could be forgiven and live in a right relationship with God the Father. John is pointing to that when he, ta- when he pointing us to that when he talks about Jesus being the Lamb of God. But look what else he points to here. He will be the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will saturate us through the direction of Jesus Christ. It's not just forgiveness and justification, it's empowerment and witness that is the ministry of Jesus to us. A most familiar verse is Acts chapter one, verse eight. Jesus says to his disciples, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth Jesus will minister to his disciples the Holy Spirit. And when he does, the result of the Spirit's presence will be that they will be witnesses. In other words, they will make clear to other people the identity of Jesus because people need to know who Jesus is. The role and the function of the Holy Spirit empowering his disciples will always point to Jesus. Gordon Smith, who is a professor at Regent College here in Vancouver, has taught, I think, in five different um, universities, um, colleges, different denominations. But he says, 
one thing that is common in all these denominations that he's interacted with and taught with is when they talk about their experience with the Holy Spirit, he says that the stories are all varied to somewhat, but there's, there's a common thread to them. Is that people can point to a time or place or an event where they had an encounter with the Holy Spirit. And maybe it was right at conversion because we believe people receive the Holy Spirit at conversion. You can't be born again without the work of the Holy Spirit. But yet sometimes after that, there's still these events where the Holy Spirit comes afresh or in a new way or comes in power and they are marked by that Holy Spirit and it changes them, transforms them. And then again, and then again. Smith's point is that Things aren't always so orderly, but we need to be in a posture where we are welcoming the Holy Spirit's activity in our life and being intentional about asking for more. As I was thinking about this and his comment about this happens in all kinds of different denominations, I read a story from R.C. Sproul, who, who was and is in the Reformed tradition. And he tells the, the story of his his concern for his fiance. They were in this relationship and moving towards marriage. And during that time, R.C. had this encounter with God. He met Jesus in a new way and it changed him. And of course, that changed their relationship. And as they were interacting with one another, uh, things often weren't going so good. They weren't tracking together. And it troubled him so much, he realized that a day was coming where if they didn't get in alignment, they would need to sever the relationship. And so he didn't want that to happen. And so he was desperate in his prayers. And he prayed and he prayed and he prayed. And he was reaching a point where he knew he had to make a decision. And on that weekend, his fiance came to visit him at the college that he was at. He invited her to a prayer meeting. She didn't want to go, but she went. And something happened. She met God that night. Sproul says, after the meeting, with an excitement that exceeded my own, she said these exact words. Listen to them. Now I know who the Holy Spirit is. See, she heard about the Spirit. She could talk about the Spirit, do the catechism thing, uh, know that God was God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But she had no knowledge of God through his Spirit. She had didn't know the Spirit. It wasn't personal. It wasn't experiential. And it needs to be. So how do we close that gap? Maybe you're here this morning and you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Um, you're invited into that. That's why Jesus died for you, shed his blood for you. He rose from the dead so that if you would believe in Jesus as the Son of God and ask him to become the Lord of your life. He enters into your life. Your sins are forgiven. The Holy Spirit creates in you to be a new creation and you begin a walk with him. It's amazing. And you're invited into that. In a moment, I'm going to say a prayer and you'll be, you can join me in that prayer and be ushered into the family of God through the new birth by the Holy Spirit. But what about the rest of us maybe that have been walking with God for a long time and maybe for some of us, our relationship with God is just like it's not really real. It's, we've checked some of the boxes, but it's, it's not personal and very seldom experiential. And I, this all seems like a glass wall to me. What do we do? We come to God. 
we come to him and we, we ask. And in our asking, like John said to the people, to prepare for God's presence, to prepare for Jesus, we confess to him those things that are in our way. Like if, if we have things in our life that we know are deliberately disobedient to God, we, we can't live in that, embrace that, and at the same time ask God to, oh, fill my life. I just want to be filled with, because the two don't go together. So if there are areas in, in your life today that you know have been blocking you in your relationship with God, and you are a Christ follower, but it's just been blocking you, the, the first step is just to confess that before God, knowing that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And, then, and, and to decide, I'm not going to live that way anymore, God, but I can't do it without your help. Well, God knows that. So would you please come and fill me with your spirit again? This is, this is just how we walk in the Christian faith. We can ask God for more of him in our lives. And I believe that God wants to do that more than we have any idea. So I'm going to close in prayer. And as we worship, we're going to have people that will be at the wings here to pray with you. Uh, if you would like to um, have them pray with you, like for more of God in your life, we'd like to do that. If we'd like to have prayer around healing, God, we just would love to do that, pray with you in that way. But let me ask you to stand and um, let me close in prayer. And if you're here this morning and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, you can just repeat these first words with me. Because we're all going to invite God into our lives in a new way. God, I just come before you. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I ask you to cleanse me from my sin. Wash me clean. Fill my life with your presence. Empower me to live for your glory. I thank you. I think we can all say amen to that. Amen.